You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. And what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, then, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. I I eat, right? Okay. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded, just as it is written. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to your word just um, asking for hearts of humility to receive from you, to be changed by you. Lord, many of us have just read that text and just uh, the shutoff switch uh, was pushed in our brain, Lord. God, we pray that you would give us minds to understand and to comprehend uh, your great grace to Israel means something to us as well. Lord, we pray that you would give us endurance today to study your word. Lord, that we would get business done, roll up our sleeves, and, and, and do work through this text today. Lord, we pray for the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in our midst to change us, God. Lord, so many of us, we're just entrapped in religion, God. I even today, coming into this room and having the smell of coffee and perfume and, and pages of Bibles and furniture. It just reminded me of when I was a kid going to church and um, just religion was just, it was a foul smell to me. And Lord, today my heart's not about religion. I'm about relationship with Jesus. And the smell is a beautiful aroma of worship to you. And God, I pray you take us to that place today where it's not religion or works that we might boast in, but Lord, that we would boast and, and over, be overjoyed in grace today, knowing we have been redeemed to a relationship with our creator. For your glory, for your praise, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. In Romans chapters 9 through 11, we're looking at the nation of Israel. The focus and the context is on the nation of Israel. Chapter 9 of Romans, we've looked at Israel's past, God's sovereign election over them as a people group, not necessarily by race, but definitely by grace. Uh, in chapter 10, we looked at Israel's present state, that they're currently in rejection of God as a corporate nation, uh, nationality, as a nation. Uh, but then we see here in chapter 11, and more so in the next weeks to come, uh, we'll look at Israel's future. As Paul says, one day all Israel will be saved. And we look forward to that day when Jesus comes back in the clouds and every eye will look on him whom they pierced. And they will fall in repentance and declare him to be their Messiah. That will be an exciting day indeed. But in these chapters, chapters 9 through 11, we look at the nation of Israel being entrenched in unbelief. 
And this wasn't to be attributed to either uh, God's unfaithfulness or God's injustice, but rather to his purpose of election we saw in chapter 9, verse 11. Uh, Also, this is attributed to Israel actually stumbling over Jesus. Chapter 9, verse 32, he's this stumbling stone to them, a rock of offense. And they became very obstinate and rebellious in their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah and his persistent advances towards them as a people. As you look back in chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, Paul says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, that I would go to hell, is what he's saying. So that my brethren and my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. And then it goes on to say, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. You know, Paul shares there in chapter nine, his deep heart for his brethren, for his countrymen, for Israel to be saved and to come to know Jesus as he has. He says, you look at these Israelites and they have been given so many privileges, so many blessings of which we just read. And then he go, you know, and then the question is asked, well, if the majority of Israel who have the blessings and privileges from chapter nine, verse five are in hell as we speak, then does that bring into question God's faithfulness to his promises and to his covenants? And how do we as New Testament Christians under a new covenant really expect and how can we really trust that we will have forgiveness of sins, eternal lives, the privilege and, um, and blessings of, of um, you know, uh, the heavens that God has promised us and an inheritance? How can we really trust that there will be reconciliation to God or has been reconciliation to God? As chapter 9, verse 6 concluded, and Paul says, it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. It's not that the promises of God have been uh, done away with. Those questions have been asked. And the question is asked again in chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? If the majority of Israel who've been giving the blessings of of the covenant of Abraham, they've been given this adoption, they've been given the privilege of serving God in the tabernacle, having the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, so on and so forth, having the patriarchs, being part of this sacrificial system and this and that, and above all things, being part of the lineage that Jesus came through. If so many Jews are in hell... What is up with God's plan? What is he doing? Has he come to a place now, verse 1 of 11, that he's cast away his people? Or next week as we get into chapter 11, verse 11, the question is asked, did they stumble so that they would fall beyond recovery? And we're going to see here in verse 11 next week, especially far from Israel being fallen and, and having her end, we'll see that this stumbling is only temporary. And so if you're a note taker, just write down that the theme of this chapter is that there is still an Israelite remnant in present day, uh, 2012, and that might be 
some in Prineville, uh, some in New York, some in Jerusalem. There is an Israeli remnant, and there's going to be an Israelite recovery in the future. And that recovery, we'll look at it next week, is going to lead to blessings for the whole world. So verse 1, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Has God cast away his people? And one might have expected this since they have rejected God. They rejected Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus the Messiah. They pinned him to a cross, rejecting God. Therefore, God must certainly have rejected them. But Paul, in asking the question in the New King James, has God cast away his people? Or in the New Living Translation, has God rejected his people? Or in the Amplified Bible, has God totally rejected and disowned this disobedient and contrary obstinate people? He should have, right? I mean, I would. Get rid of those people. Start afresh, God. I mean, look at us Oregonians. We're totally worthy of your favor. As the Bible Knowledge Commentary says, uh, actually the commentary critical and explanatory on the whole Bible, says, uh, our Lord did indeed announce that the kingdom of God would be taken away from Israel in Matthew 21, 41. And when asked by the 11 after his resurrection, uh, if he would at that time restore the kingdom to Israel, he responded that uh, Israel was in some sense already out of covenant. Yet here, the apostle Paul teaches that in two respects, verses one through 11, God has not cast away Israel. And verses 11 through 36, he's not done with Israel. And so Paul answers his own question. He does this all the time throughout Romans. Certainly not. God has not cast away his people. He's very emphatic when he says it. There's an exclamation point. Certainly not. This phrase in the Greek is mejoinito. And I think I just said it a little more Japanese than Greek, but... <laughs> You get what you pay for in Prineville. Sorry. <clears throat> this phrase is translated from the King James Version as God forbid. This is controversial within the church, people. Is God done with Israel? God forbid. Certainly not. Me, joinito. Something like that. Paul is responding by saying impossible. And he's going to give us in this chapter four proofs that God has not cast away his people. These proofs are from personal proof. We're going to see Paul's testimony here. Historical proof through the story of Elijah. Dispensational proof next week in verses 11 through 24. And scriptural proof, verses 25 through 36. Now, let's just look real quick at Psalm 89, 31. Where it said... If they break, break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I've sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David." His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. 
It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. You know, the psalmist writes of, although it's true that when you rebel against God and when you disobey, there is judgment. There will be stripes. The rod of correction will be broken out. God will not break his covenant. And for the sake of David, he has always left a seed all the way up through Jesus to say that, you know what? I'm true to my covenant. And I've said that David will reign on the earth and David will reign over the tribes upon the earth. Or Psalm 94, 14, the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. Let's start out today with the personal proof, Paul's testimony, where he says at the end of verse one, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul's own life testifies that God is not finished with the Jews. Has God cast away his people? Certainly not. I'm an Israelite. I'm a Jew. And I'm a believer in Jesus. He says, I'm an Israelite. And maybe if you just have a pen, just underline Israelite. Then right next to that, this speaks of nationality. So I'm an Israelite. And then he says, I'm of the seed of Abraham. This speaks specifically to his lineage, that he is a pure descendant of the faithful father, Abraham. Do you see how he's not just saying, I'm an Israelite? No, he's saying, man, there is so much that I am that Israel is. I'm of the nationality. I'm of the faithful father in the lineage. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. This shows distinction. In Philippians 3, 5, Paul speaks about how important that is that he's of the tribe of Benjamin. This is the tribe that revolted against the other 10 tribes with the tribe of Judah to make that one faithful kingdom of God, 1 Kings 12, 21 tells us. And after the captivity of Babylon, Benjamin was there along with Judah, a colonel of this Jewish nation. What Paul is saying here, you guys, is that Jews for Jesus live. They're real. And Paul says, I'm one of them. I'm a living example that J for J exists. In saving Paul, God saved a Jew. In using Paul, God used a Jew. Has God cast away his people? No, he's still saving Jews and he's still using Jews. Paul is himself an example of the Jews being saved that he who was the best of all Jews, Philippians 3, he says, I'm the best of all Jews and I'm still a sinner in need of savior. And he goes through in Philippians 3, I was circumcised on the eighth day by the seed of blah, 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 you know. Of the stock of Benjamin. I, who, who uses that word except for cattle ranchers? You know, stock. Genealogists, I guess, you know. But he just goes through and says, I'm the best of all Jews, still in need of a savior. I count all that was good for me as rubbish that I might know Christ. And so Paul says, you know what? I needed to be saved as the best of all Jews. But then he doesn't say that only. He also later on in scripture says, I'm also the worst of all Jews. He's a walking oxymoron. He's the best of all Jews and the worst of all Jews. He's like, you know, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times, whatever that's from. Two cities. 
Tale of Two Cities, thank you. I'm well learned. First Timothy chapter one, verse 15. This is an incredible uh, scripture that Paul says about him being the best and the worst. It says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. And you guys drill this into your minds that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let's say that again. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. You guys, I love this scripture and you should too. First of all, who did Jesus come to save? Sinners. Who is a sinner? Who is a sinner? Yeah, that would be, right? You. And so that gives great hope, no matter what your past is, that Jesus has come to save sinners. Jesus himself says, those who are well have no need of a physician, do they? But it's those that are sick that need a doctor. That's why Jesus came into the world. There's a bunch of stickies here. And he came as the great physician to seek out and to save the lost. And Paul says, I'm the chief of the lost. I'm the Even though I'm the best Jew, he says, I am so depraved. I am so in need of a savior. But then this is what he says. And I love verse 16. Here's the reason Paul obtained mercy, that he could be an example that he could be a pattern of God's long suffering and mercy. He's going to be a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. I'm a child molester. I could never be saved out of this. Au contraire. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I'm a murderer. I have literally planned out with foresight and foreknowledge how I could slaughter this individual, and I did it, being caught or not caught, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I'm a meth addict, 13 years running, no way. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I'm self-righteous. Raised in the church, going to Sunday school since I was old enough to wear penny loafers. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he is using you as an example of God's mercy that any scumbag that would come after you can be saved. I was sick for the last four days, pretty much laid in bed and was a lazy bum. Lindsay can testify to that. But while I was in bed, I picked up a book that Lynette Strobel gave me called The Cross and the Swastika. Now, The Cross and the Swastika is a book that tells the story of the aftermath of the war in Europe during World War after World War II. Hitler had killed himself, but most of the Nazi leaders were still alive and had been captured by Allied forces. These men now face trial under four indictments. Number one, they were party to a conspiracy to wage aggressive war. Number two, they had 
committed crimes against peace. Number three, they had committed war crimes, which spoke of wanton destruction and the mistreatment of prisoners of war. And fourthly, these men faced trial for crimes committed against humanity, inhumane treatment of civilian, extermination, genocide, and persecution on uh, racial or religious grounds, from which we know over six million Jews were slaughtered and hundreds of thousands of gypsies, Christians, and pastors uh, put to death alongside of them. Seventeen men of Hitler's best, Hitler's finest, faced trial and most likely faced execution for their crimes. Their future seemed dim. Enter in Henry Gurek, a United States Army, cha Army chaplain and bearer of the good news of the gospel. Gurek was assigned to bring spiritual hope and guidance in the good news of the gospel. Uh, over the course of a year, and to clearly present the good news of the gospel of peace to a hopeless string of inmates. Henry Gurek would, would say this, these men must be told about the Savior bleeding and suffering and dying on the cross for them. Now forgive me as I just kind of step away for a moment in the context of Israel uh, uh, 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, and just focusing on this moment here that God has come into the world to save sinners. And I want to focus for a second that God came into the world to save these 19 men who were on trial in Nuremberg in 1945 and 1946. We have a man named Fritz Sockel, who was in charge of the production and general for the allocation of labor. He was dubbed the most harsh slave driver since the Egyptian pharaohs. But Henry Gurek writes of him kneeling down by his bed and imploring the chaplain to read the scriptures and pray with him. Unafraid and unashamed, he prayed with me at his bedside, generously ending our prayer by saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We have feared Field Marshal Keitel who was the chief of high command of the armed forces. Keitel would, uh, would memorize numerous verses of scripture which spoke of God's mercy to sinners. Gorek writes, he made a fine choice of Bible readings, hymns and prayers and read them himself aloud. He was unashamed to kneel at his bed and together with me make confession of his sins. On his knees and under deep emotional stress, he received the body and blood of our Savior in the bread and the wine. With tears in his voice, he said, you have helped me more than you know. May Christ, my Savior, stand by me all the way. I shall need him so much. Albert Speer, Reich Minister for Armaments in War. Slave labor was used to produce his armaments, along with Balder von Schirach, the Hitler Youth Leader and overbearing leader of Vienna, and Hans Fritsch, who was the head of the Broadcasting Division and Propaganda Ministry. All were written by Gurek in this sentence, where he says, It touched my heart to see the three big men on their knees about to receive the Lord's Supper. I felt sure 
Others' prayers were with me because it was not possible to win them to the foot of the cross without the intercession of God's people. I'm convinced God worked a change in their hearts through the word that had been read and preached to them, and they were ready as every penitent is to ask God's forgiveness of sins for Jesus' sake. Gorek asked the three men, I now ask you before God, is this your sincere confession that you heartily repent of your sins, believe in Jesus Christ, and sincerely and earnestly purpose by the assistance of God, the Holy Spirit, henceforth to amend your sinful life? Then declare so by saying yes. The men said yes. With delight in his heart, the chaplain gave bread and wine to Fritsch, Von Schirach and Speer. Another man, Constantine von Neroth, former minister, 1932 through 38, an occupier of Czechoslovakia, a cruel man, would read out loud with the chaplain Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and would see that being born again was altogether a work of the Holy Spirit involving personal repentance of sins that separated him from God and that Christ paid the penalty of sin and it was up to him to ask for forgiveness and by faith receive Christ into his life. Henry Gorek recalled, as we went along, he manifests genuine interest This led to a crisis experience when the old baron admitted his need of salvation. Foreign minister Joachim von Ribbentrop would eventually be the first in line, the first in command after Hitler, as the other two men, including Hermann Goring, would commit suicide via cyanide capsule on the execution date. For Ribbentrop, Nearly a year, he'd heard the chaplain proclaim Christ as the answer, talking of the cross and the power of the blood of Jesus, and explaining that by faith, faith is simply the channel through which God's grace is received. Rippentrop could hold out no longer, seeking God's forgiveness and opening his heart to Christ. Gorek writes, one of my most heartening experiences was observing the slow and steady progress of Hakim, I don't know how to say that, Joachim, in German, Joachim, Joachim von Ribbentrop, the diplomat, from cool indifference to a tr- truly sincere Christian faith. This upset Frau Ribbentrop. As the, uh, as Garrick wrote, she certainly made it as difficult for me as she could through her letters. She wrote that she would offset my influence on her husband in every way she could. After the guilty verdict was given, the men were given final chance to see their families, and Garek heard Rippentrop plead with his wife that their children should be kept in the church and be brought up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. This statement coming from Rippentrop is especially interesting to me because at the beginning of my work, I discovered that the whole family had withdrawn from the church. Perhaps uncharitably, I labeled Frau von Ribbentrop the most ungodly woman I'd ever met. I heard her husband plead with her, have the children baptized, sweetheart. Finally, she gave in and I helped her arrange for the baptism of their two boys at a neighboring church. Along with Frau Rippentrop, Fritz Sockel's wife would promise her husband that their children should stay close to the cross of Jesus Christ. When the execution day came and Gorek said his final prayer with von Ribbentrop, he says, I heard him say that he would put all, that he put all his trust 
in the blood of the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world, while yet in his cell he asked God to have mercy on his soul. As Ribbentrop stood at the gallows, his final statement ended with, God have mercy on my soul. Then he turned to Henry Gurek and said, and my heart still warms when I think of it. I'll see you again someday. What Paul said in 1 Timothy was that if God can save the Saul's of Tarsus, he can save anybody. And an understanding of the gospel of grace will show this to be true. That the Hitlers and Hitler's henchmen in the world can be saved. That Saddam Hussein can be saved. That Osama bin Laden could have been saved. That now we have these top danger men of the world, the Ayman al-Zarwari, and the, who's the new top dog within Al-Qaeda, or Abu Yaha, Al-Qaeda's number two man, or Mullah Omar, the Taliban's spiritual leader and former head of state of the Islamic Emirates of Afghanistan. These men could be saved. Heck, maybe even Frau Ribbentrop came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. If God can save the John Bunyans, the Dietrich Bonhoeffers, men who had been persecuted for their faith, he can also save the men that persecuted them. He can save the von Ribbentrops and the Keitels and the Cycles and the other names that are very hard to pronounce. Christ Jesus came into the world to, to save sinners. And it was amazing to sing these songs today with Kendra about the blood of the lamb and to know that, you know what? There are guys that once wore Nazi uniforms and once wore robes and turbans that have come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that are now wearing robes of white righteousness purchased by the blood of the lamb. And they are before the throne right now and they are singing Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Holy, holy is he. And when we sing, we sing along with them all. Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And if he came into the world to save sinners, and the people of Israel are just that as well, then it is logical, biblical, and gospel-based to believe. In fact, to receive the promise that one day, all Israel will be saved. Amen? Amen? There's the personal proof from Paul, and there's the historical proof. But you know what? For the sake of time, we're not going to go there today. We're actually going to close early. We're going to have Kendra come on up. And we're going to just come before the throne of grace this morning. You know, it would be um, foolish on my part to make the assumption that every single person in this room is saved. That every single person in this room has a, a saving faith in Jesus Christ. That we have all, every one of us, trusted in him for the forgiveness of sins. That would be a foolish assumption, and I know that it would be an, an incorrect assumption. But that there's people here that 
are sinners. You're aware of your sin. In fact, as we've spoken today, the Holy Spirit has shown you some area of your life that's fallen short of his beautiful glory. And right now, you're dead in your sins. You're dead in your trespasses. But the good news is for you today is you are just whom Jesus came to save. You're just the one that he's looking for. And the scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit is alongside of the world to convict the world of sin and to convict the world of God's righteousness, that he is pure, that he is holy, he is light, and in him is no darkness at all. But the Holy Spirit also convicts us of judgment that one day we'll stand before just the holy, righteous judge, that nothing gets by him. And, and you, you'll stand before that righteous judge in your robes and garments and rags of filth and of sin, and you'll attempt to give a defense on your own account, and that defense will fall short. In fact, the scriptures say your mouth will be stopped, and you'll see that you're absolutely guilty and on that day, the just judge will say, away from me, I never knew you. But the gospel of grace also says that those of us that have heard of Jesus and have heard of his grace and have heard of his atonement for our sins, that by his blood, he washes away our sins, that we can put our trust in that and that we can be washed as white as snow. You know, this morning, Russell saw me transcribing from the cross and the swastika. And he's like, what book is that? And, and, you know, I've got pictures of the top five most wanted terrorists up on my computer screen. And I've got, uh, you know, German Nazis in this book. And he's like, who are those guys? And I'm like, Russell, those are bad, bad men. But you know what? Jesus came into the world to save bad, bad men. And I showed him the pictures. I said, this man killed millions of people but he believed in Jesus to wash away those sins. And you know what? Jesus forgave him and took away those sins. And he's in heaven right now. And Russell just asked just the best theological question you could ask. How does Jesus take away sins? And I said, son, Jesus takes away sins by taking them and putting them upon himself. And he takes his goodness and his obedience and he goes and he puts that on the believer. And Russell was just like, man, that's awesome. <laughs> Learning about imputation at the age five and a half. And perhaps today for you, this is your first time hearing of imputation. That he made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us. That we could become the righteousness of God in him. And why don't we just set our things aside? Why don't we just close our eyes and... And just offer our hearts to the Lord to respond to the Lord right now. You know, there's application today for both the believer and non-believer alike. For you who've come into this room as a non-believer today, you have been given a message of hope from Jesus himself. No matter what you've done, 
the most heinous of sins. And one of those being a heart of self-righteousness, thinking that you don't need a savior because you're good on your own. That those heinous sins could be forgiven. If you would show faith like a child, To enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, you must be made like a little child. You must humble yourself. Like these Nazi generals at the top of the ladder, at the top of the chain. They humbled themselves and became like babies and getting on their knees, confessed their sins and received Jesus' goodness upon them. Don't be deceived. Those sins were accounted for. And those sins went punished. But who bore the punishment? But the spotless Lamb of God. And you know what? You here today with all of your failures, you can have Jesus bear your sin and bear your shame. As the scripture says, anyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. You can be forgiven today, but you must humble yourself. You must confess, I'm a sinner and I'm in need of a savior. And you must rest in the finished work of Jesus' perfect life and his perfect death and his resurrection and glory that you too by faith would now have lived a perfect life, that you too will be crucified with Christ and yet live and now live a life of resurrection power for the one who loved you and gave himself for you. His name is Jesus. And if you're here today and that's you and you want to be forgiven of your sins, Right now where you're at, I just want to ask you to stand. Stand up where you're at. If you hear the Lord saying, that's you, I'm calling you to stand. Stand where you're at. Stand for Jesus. Respond to Jesus. He took the cross. He carried the cross. He was made shame. He was scorned for you. He hung on an open public street, naked and open and wounded and bleeding for you. He was thinking of you. And by his grace today, he calls you to stand and to respond to the gospel and to say, Lord, that's me. I want to confess you before men as you confessed me before men. I want to receive forgiveness of sins as you proclaim forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners. And if you're a sinner that needs saving, respond to that salvation and stand today. The Lord sees you. The Lord sees you. The moment that you hear him calling you to stand, do not resist it. Do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Stand where you're at and be saved. Not by standing, but by receiving through faith God's incredible gift of forgiveness. Stand right now and receive forgiveness. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to forgive sinners. And you are a sinner today. The Lord sees you standing. Just let him wash you right now. Just let him speak to you forgiveness. Let him speak to you sonship and daughtership. Let him speak to you adoption. Hear the adoption papers being signed right now. You are my son. You are my daughter. I will not let you be put to shame. You're forgiven. Anybody else stand right now? God's brought today a special message of evangelism, a special message of the good news. And he drew you here today for this purpose. That you can have your robes of filth be set aside by Jesus and you can put on white robes of clean righteousness. You can be forgiven today. Respond. You hear the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Respond today. As I said earlier, as we are closing, just it would be foolish for me to think just because people go to this church, your name's probably in the church directory, you're a Facebook fan of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, oh, you're saved. That's not what saves you. Is there any evidence of Jesus Christ being Lord of your life? Is there any evidence of him being your savior, of you resting in him, resting in him to save you from your sins? Be honest, be real before God right now. And what a gift for him to say, hey, no, you're resting in your self-righteousness. Rest in my righteousness today. And God lead you to stand right now. Respond to the gospel. Those of you that are Christians say, will you pray right now? We're just going to take a minute. We're just going to pray for you. I just sense the people that have stood here. This is awesome. The angels in heaven are rejoicing when one sinner repents. We rejoice with you. Praise God that he's moved you to stand. But he's not done yet. There's more in this place. And let's just pray right now that the Holy Spirit would just move on just sinners to be forgiven. It's a work of the Holy Spirit right now. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and comes and opens to me, I will come into him. And I will dine with him and he with me. Man, if you sense the knocking of Jesus at the door of your heart today, if you hear his voice, open the door and let him come in. We are worshiping you, Jesus. We just, just kiss towards your throne and Throw just the highest praise and joy towards you, Lord. We're thankful for the blood at the cross and the broken body there at the cross. And we're thankful that you didn't stay dead, God, but that you rose on the third day. That if anyone would believe on you, they would have that same resurrection power in their life. Lord, we just, just ascribe greatness to you, Lord. And... Uh, just bow at the name of Jesus. You are awesome, Lord. Lord, we leave this place just uh, overjoyed 
who our Savior is. We leave this place today just encouraged that um, the worst of sinners can be saved and that we can be bold and brave in proclaiming the gospel. It doesn't depend on us, Lord. It depends on you. But you use us, Lord. And Lord, there's hope now today for those family members that we have that just seem so far gone. If Saul of Tarsus can be saved, then these friends and family and co-workers can be saved. Community leaders and presidents, Lord, they can be saved, God. We pray that you would save them. We thank you, Lord, that your faithfulness to Israel equals your faithfulness to us. You are a faithful God. There's no doubt about it. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.